I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Happy Sunday. Mm-hmm. Pride Month. It's Pride Month. Yay. Yay. <laughs> You're not enthusiastic? Uh, Pride is like New Year's Eve. It's just a, a lot of pressure to have fun. I don't think it registered to me June was Pride Month until, you know, fairly recently in my adult gay life. Oh. Because going to college in Las Vegas, Pride is in March mm -hmm. because it's so damn hot. And we would visit for West Hollywood Pride, in, uh, you know, throughout the years. And... I don't think I, like, I just thought that that was like a West Hollywood thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Mm -mm. And even living in Minnesota, uh, the Twin Cities Pride event is, you know, I, I have fond memories of it and it's nice, but I just recall thinking like, oh, it's in June that this thing happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know that I had an awareness that it's important. Yes, Judy, it's June. But, um, yeah, so... Anyway, yeah, Pride Month. Uh, I haven't purchased any corporate paraphernalia. Uh, no, I mean, that's grown tiresome as well. Uh, but here, it's basically the weekend before L.A. opens back up. <laughs> right. So, whatever. That's cause for celebration. Yeah, I'm more excited for that than... Than I mean, I'm proud every day, so... Oh, there you go. So, this past week was the first time we went to a screening together. That's right, yeah. Since March of 2020. That's a press screening, yeah. That's a press screening. Correct. So, we saw The Conjuring. The devil made me do it. Yeah. It was at uh, <laughs> AMC Century City. Mm -hmm. Century City Mall is my favorite mall in L.A. Really? Okay. I think if someone's visiting Southern California or, well, Los Angeles County specifically, because um, I think Fashion Island in Orange County is pretty cool too. But mm -hmm. if you're visiting LA for the first time, I think if you want to see like LA shopping mall, I think Century City. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, even since we've lived here, that it's been remodeled. It's been remodeled. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we saw it. It was pretty. Like seamless. Uh, there yeah. were assigned seating, so maybe it was at like twenty five percent capacity. Not even, maybe mm -hmm. like twenty percent capacity, which was annoying because then these two ragged looking girls came in late. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if all of the assigned seats were taken, but they stood in the aisle forever, trying to like ascertain where they should sit. And then they plot their dumb asses in front of us. So <laughs> I'm like, well, this is great. Like, there goes social distancing. But I was still comfortable and I wore my mask most of the time mm -hmm. because I was, um, we had snacks that we finished pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then I had a soda that I drank pretty quickly. But I wasn't uncomfortable. Like, I wouldn't, I would definitely wear a mask in a theater again if, if I had to. I, well, I think that will be required yeah for a, a while but just sharing that i didn't see a problem with that and i was quite comfortable mm -hmm. moving on so another episode of drag race down under oh yeah still going on with that uh who went home uh 
Maxi Shields. Oh, the oldest contestant. Yeah. At 46. Six. But she's not old, not of all time. No, of the, of, of the season. Who's the oldest? Is it Tempest Du Jour still? Or Charlie Hive. Or Charlie Hive. Oh, one, yeah. I think Charlie Hive. Okay. I liked Maxi Shields. Yeah, he was, in drag he reminds me of Shelley Winters. Yeah, he seemed to have really good energy and so I'm sad to see him go. He lip sync against... The racist. <laughs> whose name is... Uh, Scarlet, is it Scarlet Adams? Envy. Sure. No, Scarlet Envy's the US one. Who's going to be on All Star 6. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so... I, I know all these facts, but it's like... I don't know. Drag Race is kind of trash to me. Because I was listening to Coco Peru on a podcast. And I would say my top... Let me ask you, who are your top three favorite drag queens? Um, you know... I'd still... It's RuPaul. <clears throat> Lady Bunny. Uh... Coco Peru. But Varla Jean Merman is up there as well. Sure. I would say mine are Lady Bunny, Coco Peru, RuPaul. Jackie Beat. Jackie Beat's very talented, but Jackie Beat is so, like, seems so bitter and angry sometimes. Understandable. Understandable. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I'm not unlike that in many ways, but I don't know that... I think also the venues I've seen her in... Her performance doesn't necessarily... Okay. Watching her at, like, Precinct in downtown L.A., I don't know if that was the best fit for her. Sure. But then on the Atlantis Gay Cruises I've been on, she's performed on one, I think. Mm -hmm. Her and Sherry Vine. And I thought that, like, sitting in a, a little theater or a cabaret lounge with, you know, maybe some older gay people, like my age and older, who you know, are fine sitting and drinking a glass of wine and not being loud, you know. Mm -hmm. But going to, like, a gay bar to see, like, non-Rue girls sometimes is difficult. Like, well, older queens, because mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're actually putting on a show, whereas these, you know, younger queens are just lip-syncing to music that people... It's almost... It's not that different sometimes from the music that was playing before they came on stage. Sure. So it's not as big of a disruption to the vibe. But that being said, yeah, my, my favorites are those. But anyway, I was listening to Coco Peru, and I don't even know why I brought her up. She was talking about Drag Race Down Under? No. My mind totally went blank. Oh. It was something good she said. It'll come to me. But we can move on. Uh, <laughs> Unless you have something else about Drag Race Down Under. No, I, I, I think it's just... Now more than ever, it just seems evident that I don't know if they didn't have behind-the-scenes production on this. Like, like even the judges panel, it it doesn't seem like people are feeding RuPaul commentary. Uh, yeah, you made that observation because he's his uh, her uh, critiques are very basic uh, compared to a U.S. season, right? Where, where she's quite witty and, and all the quips and yeah. And I mean, you had told me before, you know, for years. It's been known that there are people like in her She wears ear. an earpiece yeah. and someone's telling her. Yeah, and with Down Under, it sounds like it's all her. Yeah. And her is kind of mean and impatient. Yeah. So, <laughs> which, you know, that's okay too. It's just weird to see her be so different. Yeah, and even Michelle. Yeah, they all just seem... I don't know. It's a little rough. But and and it, it, it just seems... I mean, it's always been overly produced, of course, but just... It, seems so easy, 
it's obvious that they want to make electroshock. They they pegged them ahead of time, I'm assuming, as who's going to be the underdog story and who, you know, like, they have an obvious uh, slant already because even Electroshock's treatment is so seems so over the top and ridiculous. Right. Well, let's move on from. I feel like this podcast could be called "We're Disappointed with Drag Race Down Under." So, <laughs> well, it's the, the prologue to every. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next is a film called Undina. Undina. Oh, so we're doing shout-outs to films we didn't cover on the channel. Well, we're skipping around. But oh, yeah. okay. But Undina, uh, I'm still... Our screener expired. Uh, but I saw it at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival. Um, and it's a Christian Petzold film who's a favorite of mine. He's from the new Berlin School of Dir- Directors. Uh, who, until very recently, was a... His main collaborator was Nina Haas. Uh... I don't think you've had the pleasure of seeing a Christian Petzold film, which is sad, but Yella, Barbara, uh, Phoenix, uh, I mean, he's just a phenomenal director. Uh, his last film prior to Undina was Transit, uh, which is based on an Anna Seger's novel. Um, I just read The Seventh Cross by her as well, uh, which was on Obama's favorite films of the year. Transit, I was a little cool on. But that was his first uh, union with the actress Paula Beer, who is kind of a discovery of Francois Ozon's in the movie France. But this is kind of a reworking of the the, the sea nymph siren mythos and uh, starring Franz Rogowski and Paula Beer. Paula Beer won Best Actress in Berlin. Uh, I'm very excited when, if and when uh, you do see it and we will cover it. So I guess that's all I need to say about it right now. Is there a remake... In the works for the Drew Barrymore film Firestarter? Yes. Oh, so you are skipping around. Okay, so um, Keith Thomas, who directed the film The Vigil, that you know Jewish horror movie we reviewed recently, okay. he is uh, directing a remake of Firestarter starring Zac Efron. Oh! So I'm... Well, I'm very interested in I'm interested in that. In that. Well, Not so much for him, but him plus this story. Well, I, I liked, you know... I haven't liked a Stephen King novel as an adult, but as a kid, when I was reading all this stuff, I ate him up. Uh, and Firestarter was a favorite. The Drew Barrymore film is not good. No. Uh, and uh, stars George C. Scott as the indigenous character, uh, <laughs> which to watch now is, oh. Um, and what's her name? Is I think Morgan Fairchild's the mother in that, in the original. I don't recall. Um, anyhow, yeah, I, I think that one's primed for a decent... Uh, remake and uh, I liked the vigil so yeah we started watching the series Dirty John finally yeah finally I had listened to the podcast which is what spawned the television series uh, a few years ago and was like blown away Uh, so we finally decided to start it yesterday after you saw that season two was up Mm-hmm. So we cranked through three episodes last night. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Oh, I like it. I think Connie Britton is perfectly cast. Um, yeah. I like Eric Bana. Uh, although you commented that you don't know after watching him in this, you can see him. He seems less appealing. Uh, I really like Juno Temple uh, as uh, Veronica. I believe so, yeah. And, of course, Julie Garner uh, from Ozark. I like whenever those two are on screen 
immensely. Yeah. So anxious to finish that. Okay, The Skin of My Desire. Uh, another new project. Uh, it, it was hidden in an article about uh, a bunch of new projects that have gotten Swiss funding. Uh, it's, so it'll be the third feature directed by the Zerker brothers, um, who are Swiss twins. Uh, previously, they directed The Strange Little Cat in 2013. And then this past year, 2021, their sophomore film, The Girl and the Spider, uh, played in uh, the Berlin Film Festival, which I reviewed and really liked. So I'm, I'm very excited to see, you know, because there was this eight-year gap that they are already working on their next. I don't know anything about it other than the translation of their title is The Skin of My Desire. There was a documentary on Netflix called Studio 54 we watched earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And it's, just, it, it, it's not really anything we don't already know, necessarily. Uh, for anyone who's interested in Studio 54, they probably already... Well, did you put that on because we'd watched Halston? Well, you know, in the mornings I like to just put on something because I get up so early. So I had put it on, but was working. So I didn't pay full attention. And then I think you were preparing dinner one night, mm -hmm. perhaps, or lunch, when I said, like, well, let me put it on. I put it back to the beginning. But... um. Yeah, I, I don't know why I even wanted to talk about it except to say that I think the magic of Studio 54, like it's one of those things that over time I don't know that the lore and the appeal of it will last because it, it at that time it seemed so revolutionary. But I think we saw in like the early 2000s sort of like the club rave scene mm -hmm. and people having, you know, mega DJs and EDC and all that, that I feel like Sex, drugs, and music is not something that's, you know, something that's long past or long since past. And, you know, it had COVID not happened, it would still be going strong. Mm -hmm. it'll, so It'll come back. So just watching it, I thought like, oh, it's so interesting how something can be so glamorized. And then when you think about what's behind the curtain, namely Stephen Rubel. Oh, yeah. One of the owners. <laughs> Who's like this snivelly little game closeted gay man who I think, you know, as someone who develops products, it's like I develop products that I wouldn't necessarily use. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not to say that I can't develop a product that I wouldn't use or he can't open a club that he wouldn't go to or that a dentist has to have beautiful teeth. Like those aren't required, but I think thinking about how that club developed sort of the idea of the velvet rope and being notorious for picking and choosing who can come in. And mm -hmm. it's just so funny. Like, cause I've never, I mean, you know me, if there's a line oh, yeah, for me to get in somewhere or there's any kind of weight, it, like it's not worth it. Oh yeah. If, and if there's a, it's a celebrity hotspot, count me out. No, oh, automatically I don't want to go. Or if it's like, you know, what's that restaurant on sunset, the griddle. Mm hmm. Yeah. That only serves breakfast. Oh, great pancakes, though. The yeah. Great. If you're in L.A., well, this is the problem, because everyone who comes to L.A. wants to go to the griddle. Mm -hmm. And there's always a, well, you know, before COVID, always a huge line to get shitty service in a really cramped space. And I just... And the service is shitty. Yeah. So that's how I... I, I think about Studio 54 like that. Like, just... I appreciate at that time and it being... Um, a place where 
people who were left of center mm-hmm. felt like they could go, right? Because the queers and the freaks all went. and So I think that's great. Well, it, the, you know, the notion of the underground gay, or the underground club is staying underground, like Berghain in Berlin, um, which notoriously turns away hundreds of people every weekend, thousands even, depending, I guess, on the weekend. Um, <clears throat> but caters, you know, to a specific type of person, i.e. gay men by themselves. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I can appreciate, and, you know, even listening in that documentary peripherally to um, the gays being interviewed and what a, you know, welcoming place that was for them, sure. I'm happy that that was available to people at that time because there's even a couple of, I think they referred to themselves as drag queens, but I'm assuming with by today's standards they were trans women. But they talk like there's someone interviewing them, and they say like, "Oh, has New York changed? Like, like because you're accept because they talk about how they love going to Studio Fifty Four because they're accepted." And then one of the girls says, "No, honey, don't get it twisted. When I leave this club, people are awful to me and and, and abusive. So it's just like this place feels comfortable. So that I." I'm happy that it was there at that time for people to feel safe. But it's just interesting as the years go by and as different movies or different documentaries include Studio 54, it's just like, uh Because even the Halston series on Netflix, the depiction of Studio 54 was very like, oh, it's just like, it almost seems like an ultra lounge. Like, mm-hmm. you know, where... And, and it was sparse, maybe because of production, they just couldn't replicate the real thing. But anyway... Uh, Next is, uh, I discovered a reality TV series, I think it's only on YouTube, called Chasing LA, Mm -hmm. and I found it by accident because I was trying to find a review for the movie The Retreat, the Pat K. Mills movie, Mm -hmm. and couldn't find one. I think we're the only review, at that time we were the only review up for that film, but there's Chasing Atlanta and there's an episode called The Retreat. So that was the first thing that popped okay. up. And, and I, I checked it out, and then I saw that they have an L.A. version. It's not for everyone. The quality is, you know, I'm the last to talk about quality with our videos, but the, um, <laughs> but the quality of it is not the best. I, I would encourage people who are the sort to like, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's all queer and trans people of color mm-hmm. and they're doing a reality show a la um, like Real Housewives mm-hmm. and I just I really enjoy it it has all the foolery and fuckery that you would expect in a reality show all the overproduced melodrama you oh know. my gosh <clears throat> but it, it's enjoyable and seeing these people sort of like it makes me happy because there are so many people out there who are so knowledgeable or so or so talented in some way or have so much personality who will never have a voice. Mm-hmm. And then the people who do have voices are so like, meh, to me. So I think, like, I tried, I, I did a slight bit of research to see who created this and I couldn't find it. Um, but I think whomever created it, it's pretty smart. Like, the marketing of it, even though, the, so the problem with the production is the sound. Mm-hmm. The sound is terrible. Yeah. Because no one's mic'd. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't want to be mic'd either, so. But it looks good. And the format of it is very similar to 
all other reality shows. And the best, so, so if you like seeing queer and trans people of color do their thing and be overly dramatic for entertainment purposes, and you want to support uh, creatives who aren't, who, who, who don't have the biggest platform, I would recommend checking out Chasing LA. But the best part of Chasing LA is in the middle of every episode. Mm-hmm. Because they're about like 50 minutes long. There's a four minute intermission where a, I believe she's a drag queen. I don't think she's trans. Named a person named, uh, uh, it's a play on Ayanla Van Zant, but mm-hmm. it's like Van Zapp. Mm-hmm. She gives a review, like a mid-episode review of the episode, and that's the best part. Well, because they're very withering reviews. Yes. Like, she's been commissioned to review a show where she's basically shitting on it. Uh-huh, yes. But, but, but in a very sort of constructive way and very, like, motherly way. Yeah. And I would say that it is worth watching all of the episodes, even if you just sort of fast-forward to her part, because she's great. She needs her own show reviewing a lot of things but uh we'll end this section by talking about uh you seem to be very excited about the can lineup well, there are several other films i know that oh okay oh, the... I, I will get to those oh okay relax the can lineup yes so on uh, was that july 3rd yeah thursday july 3rd the um terry Frimo uh, unveiled the competition uh, and Un Certain Regard and uh, a bevy of other uh, side programs. Uh, the 2021 Cannes Film Festival, which uh, will kick off July 6th to 17th, um, which everybody's you know been waiting for with bated breath. I, I am overly happy with the lineup. It's bigger than usual. There are 24 uh, titles competing which already stresses me out because I think it's going to be hard to get around on the ground there. Um, there, As usual, there will be some late additions. Um, I've heard about five titles to the official program will pr- likely be added, uh, two of those likely in the competition, which would be 26 titles. And they've also unveiled a new um, sidebar called the Premieres Section, which... Uh, is bizarre to me. It's kind of, which has major names, like just a few of the names in their premiere section. There's a documentary by Andrea Arnold, uh, the Desplechant film, that's an uh, adaptation of the Philip Roth novel, Han Sang Su, uh, Cornel Mondruxo, um, somebody else I'm forgetting. Uh, it, anyhow, it's it, it just like, oh, these will premiere in the competition, or not in in the program, but not in the competition, which is bizarre because those are major names. So it just gives this impression that we thought they were good, but not good enough. Um, and makes it feel a little Sundancey because that's, you know, there's the premiere section of Sundance as well. Um, because keep in mind, so they have this new premieres program, but they also have special screenings program. The out of competition uh, <laughs> uh, film selected. Um, I did not prepare a top 10 most anticipated yet because the director's Fortnite, which is a, a separate uh, sidebar, will be announcing their lineup j- June 8th. And then cr- the Critics Week uh, selection will also be, I think, I think on the 7th. Uh, so after all of those, the, you know, then that's kind of the complete can program. Uh, and so maybe our next uh, podcast, I'll talk more at length about things I'm really excited about. Um, however, notably... There, 
I think the record number of uh, women directors across the program uh, is, is a newly set record. However, in the competition itself, there are only four women competing, which really isn't that... Uh, you know, uh, so 20 are men and four are women. Uh, but the women that are playing there, I'm kind of excited for. Uh, Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island. Although I'm a little nervous about that because I think it's been passed over several times at other major festivals, including, I thought, Cannes last year. But, um, you know, Mia Hansen love, you've seen Things to Come. Uh, with Isabel? Yeah, which I love. Okay. Um, I couldn't stand her movie she did after that called Maya in 2018. Uh, so this is... Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Catherine Corsini um, has a lesbian drama called The Fracture. This would be her second time in uh, competition. Uh, another one I'm really excited for is uh, Julie Ducorno's uh, sophomore film called Titane uh, with Vincent Lindon. And her first film was Raw. And you know what? You haven't seen Raw, that premiered in Critics Week. I think you'd like it, though. It's gonna. It's a cannibal horror movie. Oh. Um, with a prominent uh, queer character, definitely oh. worth watching. Uh, I've heard that her next one is kind of trashy, and so that is even more exciting that it's in the competition. Uh, and then uh, Hungary's Ildiko Agnetti, uh, who won the Golden Bear at Berlin for her last film on Body and Soul, and her newest film is The Story of My Wife, which I read the book about a month ago. It's based on uh, by Milan Fust, which might come back into the conversation uh, of our main topic for today. Moving on to films you watched that we did not review on our YouTube channel. The first is City Slickers. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen City Slickers. Uh, our friend Javier recommended it. Mm -hmm. He seems to like it. Yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> you know, Jack Palance... I can't believe he won an Oscar. He won for that. his Oscar for that film, and famously, I, I, I believe that the acceptance speech is when he got down and gave push-ups. Um, you know, I love him in Sudden Fear with Joan Crawford. He's fine, but I just don't see what was so remarkable about that performance. I don't either, because and it made me look up who he was up against, and you know, uh, I guess he was the most exciting thing in the best supporting lineup that year. But you know, if if you think back to this period, so Plants was the one who announced 1992's Best Supporting Actress, which was um, My Cousin Vinny's... Oh, God, I'm looking at her name. Uh, uh, Marissa she, Tomei. Marissa Tomei. And everybody was up in arms and, you know, suggested... I wanted to say Tamara Moore or something. No, Marissa Tomei uh, was up in arms and su suggested that he read the wrong name off. And was like, well, technically, she was more deserving of that award than Jack Palance for City Slickers. But anyhow, it's just funny, you know... Because they're men and having a midlife crisis, Bruno Kirby and Daniel Stern, and uh, a useless Helen Slater, and uh, just how men, films about men suffering from a midlife crisis. Give me John Cassavetti's Husbands. Uh, go see that film over City Slickers. <laughs> it also made me think, what would Billy Crystal? Billy Crystal could have been a looker if he would have gotten rid of that hairline. Oh, that. That hair is Because he has yeah. like a six head. Like it's just out of control. But anyway, next is, we watched another film with Javier, Land Before Time, a cartoon animation. Yeah, you know, I think it's because, well, it's because, okay, we watched Gully, and then he brought up Fern Gully, and so then 
you didn't want to pay the rental fee for Fern Gully, and so we watched that live before time. You know I'm frugal. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen that in 30 plus years, probably, since I was a young child, and I had fond memories of it, uh, Don Bluth. And it's funny, you know, he directed so many integral films from my childhood, The Secret of Nim, um, uh, An American Tale, All Dogs Go to Heaven, that all have this very melancholy vibe and are dealing with death in, I think, ways that are appropriate to introduce to children. Okay. I didn't finish it, so I don't even recall, or I don't know how it ends. You were, yeah, of course you were here. It was 70 minutes. I finished it? Yes. I do not remember. You said it was corny. They make it to the promised land. The Great Valley. The Great Valley. And then that's it? They just... Yeah. Oh. I mean, there's the umpteenth sequels that I've never seen, but... Okay, to be fair to this movie, I think I I would watch it again if it were, like, in a theater. I, I, I think the visuals and the sound, like... The score, James yeah. Warner's score. I, I I would watch it again if I could see it in a theater. I mean, that's what really works the tear ducts is that score. Okay, what's Wildcats? Wild, you, oh, I watched it yeah, with girl. um Goldie uh, Hawn. Pe- oh, <laughs> what were you gonna say? Pandora Box. No, Goldie Hawn. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I think Pandora Box looks like Goldie Hawn in this movie. Sure. Well, she has terrible. It's 1986. She has terrible hair. Yeah, um, she has like this feathered shag mullet mm-hmm. combo. She looks electrocuted, and it's like you can tell her highlights are very fresh, mm-hmm. like because it's it's about a coach. Yeah, she grew up uh, football. Her father was a football coach. It's her dream to teach her own. She gets hired. Teach her own. She gets hired, uh, like in an inner city school in Chicago. In Chicago, <laughs> it's kind of like if Dangerous Minds were. Like slapsticky kind of. Yeah, remember the Titans versus Dangerous uh, Man. Uh, directed by Michael Ritchie, who was uh, a pro at the sports-related dramas. Uh, I mean, he did Downhill Racer with Robert Redford, the skiing film, uh, which is a great film actually. Uh, he did Bad News Bears, which I've never seen and was remade. And he did a really good film I like called Prime Cut, starring Gene Hackman and Sissy Spacek. Uh, but yeah, this film. You know, I've known about it for years, and I just put it on. And it's one of those 80s films that gave that was a starting point for a lot of people, so it's fun to see all of them. Like Woody Harrelson. Woody and Harrelson looks good. And Wesley Snipes. And Willie Snips, who I really like, is in it. And Mikkel, Mikkelty Williamson. And, and uh, Nipsey Russell. Nipsey Russell. Who, you know, it's unfortunate that this was a cinematographer. You know, as... Traditionally, all films then uh, didn't know how to film black people, uh, so he looks like a cadaver. <laughs> yeah, poor Nipsey, but he's like nearly seventy in this film, and he looks great. He's like his makeup and the it, it's the makeup more than the lighting uh, is pretty bad. Yeah, but uh, it was on Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. so I'd recommend Wildcats on Amazon Prime. It was a fun watch. It also ends. The end credits are all the football players with Goldie Hawn oh, singing a song to LL Cool J's football rap. <laughs> Which I thought was very entertaining. That, I would actually watch it again. It w- it wasn't as much of a train wreck as I was expecting. Well, we need to move on. So, the debut. Oh, so Cult Epics put out a trilogy of Dutch filmmaker Nushka van Brakel. Uh, and I've watched two of them. I have not seen A Woman Called Eve, uh, which features Maria Schneider, a lesbian film. So I watched the debut, which I believe is the first one, uh, 
in, it's basically about forbidden love between a very young teenage girl and a unattractive middle-aged married man. You know, kind of like Lolita uh, mixed with the Swedish I am curious yellow and blue feeling. Um, just okay. But her magnum opus, which I just finished watching, was The Cool Lakes of Death. That makes me want to say dive into the cool waters of Darien Lake. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is very much like a Bronte sisters novel. Uh, but it's based on its own acclaimed novel by Frederick Van Eden and features an actress I really like, uh, Renee Stutendeck who's also in uh, Woman Called Eve. You might know Renee Sutendeck from some very early, excellent Paul Verhoeven films like uh, The Fourth Man and Spetters. And she's also one of the witches in Guadagnino's Suspiria remake. I, you know, I wish all, the, all of these fantastic older European actresses are playing these witches, which to me was my favorite part of Guadagnino's take on that. Um, but Cool Lakes of Death also kind of, it felt very much uh, like the woman's version of something like the story of my wife. It's about this woman who loses her mother at a young age and she, um, her father hires this governess who's puritanical and they make her feel very repressed about sex. That She grows up with uh, this boy that's sweet on her who becomes an artist. He's below her class. Uh, she marries somebody else in like a spiritual marriage that someone's that, this man that, doesn't believe in sex, basically. And then she has a, a love marriage, a, a sexual tryst with this famed pianist. Uh, but because of that, the husband tries to kill him. They abscond to England. She gets pregnant. Pianist leaves her. There's a, she, you know, she, the baby dies from, like, typhoid fever or something. And then she uh, loses her mind, becomes a prostitute, and is addicted to morphine. That doesn't sound so bad. No, it's it. I was quite entertained. What is La Piscine? La Piscine, uh, Rialto Pictures has uh, restored the 1969 Jacques Duray. I guess you could call it a classic. It's about to be put on Criterion. Um, and I saw, uh, I went to the theater to see it with two friends this week and had some interesting conversations right after it, which I think also relate to the conversation we're about to have. But... Uh, it's notably was remade by Luca Guadagnino in uh, 2015 now with Tilda Swinton and Ray Fiennes and Dakota Johnson. Uh, it stars Rami Schneider and Alain Delon and a, uh, Rami Schneider's transfixing in it and uh, a very beautiful Jane Birkin. Um, Rami Schneider? Rami. Rami Schneider? Yeah, she's... Uh, oh, a lady. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I know I've talked about her before. You talk about a lot of things. You've seen her before. You've seen her in The Most Important Thing is to Love, which you were upset that I made you watch that. Well, then I blocked it out. Mm -hmm. um, this was, I, I believe she'd already broken up. She had a very high-profile romance with Elaine Delon. Um, again, not a great film about very superficial people. Uh, a murder happens. Uh, you know, it's beautifully shot. Uh was more fun talking about afterwards. But this is the second time I saw it. I, I, I own the Alain Delon collection, and uh, I watched it in prep for the Guadagnino remake years ago. Okay, lastly, the real thing. The real thing. Oh, uh, that is a four-hour Japanese film by Koji Fukada, uh, which I believe Film Movement is releasing, or released on Friday. And you, I didn't even ask if you wanted to watch it, but I did, and quite enjoyed it. Fukada is directing from a comic, uh, a manga series, basically, which is interesting in itself, considering the subject matter. And 
I think it, there's a, a cut that exists for Japanese television that's a like a 10 episode series. Uh, I thought it worked well enough as a four hour film with because I watched it in two sittings. Uh, very enjoyable. Fukada had directed one of my favorite films that was released last year, A Girl Missing. Uh, excellent film. Uh, Harmonium is probably still best known for. Uh, the Real Thing did have the 2020 Can label, so likely would have premiered there had that festival happened. But if you like Japanese cinema or Fukada, I definitely... Uh, also an interesting film that plays with gender roles and relationships and desire uh, in, in ways that I, I was into. Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So, the topic... Mm. Oh, One last thing I forgot to tell you to add to the slate. Isabelle Huppert news. Um, okay. Mama Weed was picked up by Music Box Films and will be released stateside in July. Oh. Which we've already seen because I begged... Last summer, I begged and begged and begged and begged the French uh, distributor to give me a screener, and they did. And uh, we did watch it and reviewed it. We did review it. Yeah, we did. Mama Weed. Mama Weed. Okay. A lot of fun. She looks great in it. Loved it. All right. Well, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Okay, today's topic with the remaining 20 minutes we have oh, okay. is to talk about marriage. <laughs> I don't know what sparked this. I don't know either. I think we were just talking with Javier again. About <laughs> I've shouted him out three times now. Mm -hmm. um, so I deserve a gift. Um yeah, I, I don't know why we decided to talk about this, but I was thinking about films or television shows that informed my impression of what it was like to be married, okay. in addition to witnessing my own parents be married. Sure. Which I don't know. I don't know. Now that I... Well, we can talk about well, it. Well, kind of how the, the universe... The accepted universal dysfunction of what marriage... Right, when you're in it as a kid experiencing like, you know, some, pe some someone else's marriage who also happens to be your parents, it's very interesting because I think the the relationship that, I'll just speak for myself, like the relationship I have with my parents seemed very separate from their relationship. And right. I don't know that I ever acknowledged that, I don't think I understood that like these these two motherfuckers have like a relationship they need to manage outside of, uh, like, myself and my right. siblings. Right. So, yeah. So, thinking... We, we can talk more about it, but initially, just kind of quickly, I wanted to know, what are some films we associate with, like, our impression of marriage, and, and why? I think you had asked me what, when I think about marriage, what film pops into my mind, and it's always, because I reference it all the time, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Two people being awful to each other. But also coming to this moment of grace at the end of it that is very poignant and kind of forgiving. Um, you know, the, it's stunt casting with Liz Taylor and, and Richard Burton screaming at each other, which... Who are actual spouses. Right. And divorced and remarried. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just how, you know, introduced to two outsiders who they play, you know, drunken games with. And just how, yes, it's it's over, it's dramatic. It's based on a, a great play by Edward Albee, Mike Nichols, I think his debut. Uh, but just the kind of exaggerated truth it gets at, and I don't know. It, it it's a difficult film, but also highly entertaining. <laughs> well, since I know you'll have more to say, I'll just run through mine. I think when I think about marriage, I think about the uh, War of the Roses. Sure. Yeah. Which is really more about divorce. 
Well, I think you can't have one without the other. Sure, but I I think I always thought, because I watched that pretty young, maybe like 10. You know, my thoughts on that film were, I loved Kathleen Turner, and my, you know, I'd seen Jewel of the Nile and Romancing the Stone, and I remember watching War of the Roses and being so unhappy as a kid because it's not funny. <laughs> well, I just remember thinking that marriage is awful, mm-hmm. and it's going to end terribly. <laughs> uh, but... Other things that popped into my head were the more recently Marriage Story. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. With uh, Scarlett Johansson and, and Adam Driver. Adam Driver, which I thought is a sad film. Mm-hmm. And several scenes and ideas resonated with me a lot. Namely, like, Scarlett's character feeling like her husband doesn't support her. Mm-hmm. Not so much like that's how I feel in my life, but just like her saying that really felt real. Like, yeah, I could totally see based on this story how this character would feel that way. And then I also felt so sad for Adam Driver's character. You know, he contributed to the, 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 the discord, but then the rigmarole he has to go through to see his child was just so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these two people had a baby. Mm-hmm. And so, then when, yeah. aside from wasting their years together, they created a life, and now this poor life has to deal with this bullshit. Oh, yeah, and the, the circus of the, the uh, court system, when, you know, with three excellent performances, I thought, by Alan Alda, Ray Liotta, and especially Laura Dern, uh, you know, are, are kind of a different than what we're talking about. But, yeah, uh, I think I remember feeling reluctant to watch that with you because uh, a lot of it did feel very... Um, relatable relatable yeah well you know that's I think I well we we can get into it but lastly I was going to say another example from television that I think really informed my idea of what marriage was was the sketch comedy show Mm -hmm. in Living Color David Allen Greer and Kim Wayans played they had a recurring bit where they played an elderly married couple who when they were surrounded by company, were very loving. But as soon as they were alone together, they were so mean and nasty to each other. Mm-hmm. But then they would always end their sort of like fights with, but we're still together. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think I always thought, I don't know that I think that's a healthy way to approach a relationship. But I always thought it, was, it, it would be nice to like find someone and have a life with someone who I could be frustrated with and have debates with and I don't I don't know that I want to be mean and nasty to my spouse but I think the rebound was very appealing to me Mm -hmm. like oh these two people get over it because every other TV show because also Married with Children was something I watched a lot because my uncle who has now since passed really really enjoyed Mm -hmm. so I'd watch it with him so I have a connection to that because of him but also um I liked uh, Ed O'Neill back then, but (laughs) watching their relationship was just so, like, tiresome. Because it's like there's never any reprieve from the disdain they have for each other. And that seemed very, even in my little pea brain back then. Toxic, yeah. Well, not only only toxic, but just unrealistic. Like, who, because then it's like, well, who would stay in a relationship where there's no, there are no, like, peaks? Mm Mm-hmm. And the answer is a lot of these dumb bitches out here. <laughs> a lot of y'all out in this world uh, do stay miserable. But um, 
Yeah, at the time, I remember just feeling like, because in Living Color and Married with Children were around the same time, thinking like, oh, here's a married couple who also don't get along, but then they have moments where they, you know, say they love each other. But um, you had some other examples I think you wanted to bring up. Well, I think my mind was going towards, um, well, first of all, because this is a very heteronormative lens we're discussing marriage under because that's what a proliferation of examples exist. Um, but uh, I, I was going towards kind of like off of who's, a, I have two tangents here, like off of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, the, these projects that creatives uh, are using to mine their own issues, like Angelina Jolie's By the Sea, uh, starring her and her then-husband, Brad Pitt, which she chose to be the first time that, about a sterile couple, uh, ironically, uh, that that's the first time she was credited as Angelina Jolie Pitt. Uh, or I thought of Richard Brooks' 1969 film, The Happy Ending, uh, which... Uh, starring his wife, Jean Simmons, and how they... She's playing a woman that leaves her marriage to find herself and how it's kind of this exercise to... Their own catharsis for their own demons. Um, and scenes from marriage, of course, Ingmar Bergman's with Liv Ullman. Uh, just the kind of going... You know, you've never seen that film, but that's, that's a masterpiece that you should watch. Um, but my mind also goes to, you know, films of, of divorce... Uh, possession, the Zulowski film, uh, which is that film is a metaphor for divorce of Isabella Johnny going to having sex with this alien creature while she's trying to leave Sam Neill. Okay, so transitioning a little bit, what what about being being married? Wh why is being married important to you? Um, well, I I think that it conveys a sense of commitment to others is, is you know that there's this this is our our stability in our world and we we take each other seriously uh it you know should connote uh respect uh, equanimity etc i would answer that question by saying it's important because i think there needs to be more how do i say this I observe a lot of people who, oh, like my boyfriend and I, we've been together for five years. We live together. You're ba you're basically playing house. Well, yeah, it's your, but, yeah. But there's no actual commitment. Like that fool can get up and leave you at any moment. As soon as this lease is up, th that's it. He can, I mean, unless y'all bought the refrigerator together on a Best Buy credit card, like this person could literally just get up and leave. He can walk away with all your stuff, as Loretta Devine says in he, Color Girl. That's right. So I think it's like, I'm not it's, implying that marriage is for everyone, but I do think that if the question is why did I think it was important, I think it's because there needs to be something. It's an investment. To hold people together. And, if it were, and to me, that's a contract. Like, it yeah. is a legal contract. Mm -hmm. And it may sound unromantic, but I think it, it's very practical because in the moments where I feel like I don't want to be married. I usually can't get that far because I think like, well, it'd be very complicated. So I need to reevaluate. Okay. Am I just like fundamentally unhappy with this and it will never get better? Or am I just annoyed as fuck 
and I just want to be left alone, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. and I can get past this. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's usually like I'm just having a period. Well, you know, two people being together, well, like you said, it's this idea of like long-term monogamous, you know, traditional relationships, they do seem daunting. Like, oh, so you're telling me that I have to live the rest of my life with someone who I met when I was 18 and I'm only ever going to think about you and only ever be satisfied by you and get all of my emotional support from you and build this life together and not be able to be dynamic in how we view the world. That, to me, sounds terrible. To some people, it sounds like heaven. So I don't want to minimize (laughs) that, but I just think... Because people do often ask me about being married because we've been together for so long and I look so young. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, so people often ask, like, what is that like? Or, you know, usually they're saying, like, oh, that's really cool. What is that like? Oh, yeah. Usually the calculation is, you know, I'm 36. And when I say I've been married to you for 13 years, they're like, oh, you, (laughs) yeah. So, um, yeah, I just think that for me it was necessary. And I, I would be lying if I said 13 years ago... I had that in my head. Like, oh, this will solidify this relationship and I'm making a commitment to grow and strengthen the bond and that will... No. I think I just thought like, well, this makes sense because I haven't felt this way before about someone with Mm -hmm. all of my experience. So might as well, you know, tie the knot. So I didn't... I don't think I had that... This awareness back then. However, now I think... It just, to me, seems like a waste of time when just so many people are like, oh, I was with him for five years and her for three years. And it's just like you're chronically dating and having these, like, mini long-term relationships. And what does that amount to? And I'm not... And, and, you know, it's not about being used and worn out and whatever. It's about, like... I don't know. It's different for everyone. For me, I used to always say, I'm over 40 now, so I feel comfortable saying this. I I used to always think I don't want to be 40 and have never, like, committed to someone. I used to think that. Mm -hmm. Because I used to think, like, it would be too late. It's not too late. People find love at 90. Yes. But for me, I think if I were, like... If I were single today, having never committed to one of the countless men who I dated who were so sweet and nice, mm-hmm. I think I'd feel like a fool. So, to me, marriage was like the acknowledgement that I met someone special and I'm committing to creating a life with this person and I'm going to work through the ups or I'm going to work through the low moments in hopes that there are, you know, high times ahead. Mm-hmm. And obviously, sometimes divorce is necessary. Sometimes people should break up. I'm not saying just stick with someone because you shouldn't be alone. But, yeah. What other thoughts do you have? <laughs> uh, I went on a rant. No, no it's, a, it's, a, it's okay. Um, I, <clears throat> I think the reflection, you know, to bring it back to cinema, I guess, if you will. Uh, you know, the reflections we see, I, I think, are most often of people having issues dealing with, you know, minding the gap. They're the the institution and how it's supposed to work, how it's in our minds about how it's supposed to work and then the reality of it the, the messy reality of life and, and our desires and our emotions and how it's 
even with somebody you know so well, it's difficult to be on the same continuum at all times, and it it's just it's just not possible. So there, uh, I, I think culturally, there should be more of a an acceptable paradigm shift because even you know once because we, for all intents and purposes, eloped because. Uh, we got married before gay marriage was legal. so there In were, the state we were living in. Right. So we had to go to a state where it was legal. Right. And it wasn't until 2013 where we were finally, with, with the Supreme Court ruling, that we were finally in a place where it was recognized. And I think since then, the shift that I've noticed in people's attitude towards us is that the assimilation means that we're supposed to adopt heteronormative values, which neither of us do or agree with like equal rights shouldn't be adopting heteronormative values right um, it's just i want to be treated equally um because everybody's relationship should be for their own you know it's really for everybody to figure out on their own but i think as far as what is so compelling about across all cultures watching people in their committed unions is a lot of the same you know universally human issues and i i think um one of the filmmakers I wanted to bring up kind of lastly is, um, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on his name now, the, the film The Face of Another uh, by Teshigahara, Hiroshi Teshigahara, who uh, Criterion has a lovely uh, set of three of his films from the 1960s. But Face of Another, he adapted a lot of Kobo Abe, uh, Abe's novels, including most famously Woman of the Dunes, which is an, <laughs> kind of an excellent metaphorical film about relationships as well. Uh, but The Face of Another is about a man whose face is scarred, disfigured in an accident, and so his face changes, and so then he seduces his wife, as but she believes him to be somebody else and kind of causes their ruin. Which also reminds me of the Kim Kiduk film Time, in which a woman is so upset that her relationship has grown stagnant, um, I think it's just with a boyfriend, but she has plastic surgery to look like someone else to re-experience that honeymoon period with him, unbeknownst to him. Oh. Um, but, you know, just the, the, the lengths we go to to reclaim those early moments of attraction, because if that's all that the foundation is, then it's going to crumble. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, that being said, I do think I used to feel like there's definitely a criteria for who I would have considered being in a long-term relationship with. And I think the two things were, would I be comfortable introducing this person as my significant other? Right. Which I don't think a lot of people think about because I see a lot of people in relationships with people who I know they're embarrassed to be with and well, it's true. A lot of you know what I'm saying. Yeah, a lot of, of people are in relationships with people who they are embarrassed to be with. They can't take them anywhere. They can't socialize with their friends, other mm -hmm. family members, their coworkers. They're embarrassing. So <clears throat> I always thought, like, I definitely don't want to be in a situation with someone who I can't be with publicly. Right. <laughs> Which sounds obvious, but it's not to some of y'all. And someone who would age well because. <laughs> I used to think that, too, that because I used to think, like, oh, I'm going to be with this person forever. Mm -hmm. And some of y'all age like milk. So what am I going to do? You're talking about white people. No, just no, <laughs> no, not at all. Like, just some, you know, like, but there was more to it. I used to think, like, oh, some people really, like, go hard on life in a way that I don't see as being mm -hmm. uh, 
a good value. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I used to think about that. Sure. Like, oh, I'm not going to date someone who parties really hard and like smokes like a train and like does drugs every weekend because you're going to be like ragged mm-hmm. in 10 years. And then what am I going to do? God. Which are very super, you know, that sounds dumb, but I think though that's what I thought. Okay. You know, just thinking about being married and what that meant like. Clearly, I'm not a master. I think that, you know, the real key is that you will need to learn how to, uh, you know, check your own pride and um, be forgiving. Like, learn how to forgive. It's like, oh, like you've had to forgive me a lot? Yeah, girl. <laughs> I'm sure the same. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. I choose to forget. <laughs> Um, anyway, before we uh, wrap up... You um, have two minutes. Are you reading anything? I, I, like, I like to talk about what we're reading. Okay, so Nick read a book called Gay Bar. Mm-hmm. And he said it was something I, he, it would be something I like. Yeah. But, you know, I read like one page a day. So I'll it's... have a review available in 2023. Oh, but, uh, but anyway, you read that book. So I'm currently reading that book. Yes, and I would like to talk about it and compare it to Larry Kramer's Faggots. Okay, well, we will do that when I finish um, But also, this week I finished... Uh, the, I've never read Donald Goins before, who is the father of... Ur- the godfather of urban lit. I like how the village voice on the cover of this says, the voice of the ghetto itself. Uh, I read Never Die Alone, which is the only Goins novel adapted for a film starring DMX, directed by Ernest... Dickerson in 2004, which now I need to watch. But, um, yeah, it was entertaining. Uh, Tupac has a uh, quote on the cover that says, Machiavelli was my tutor, Donald Goins was my father figure. So if you like pulp fiction, uh, I suggest that. And now I am have moved on to Only Yesterday, an informal history of the 1920s, published in 1931 by Frederick Lewis Allen, uh, because I watched a Tribeca screener that I can't really talk about called Roaring Twenties, and I've had this book forever, and it, it motivated me to read that. Uh, but fascinating uh, stuff. It, it, because the Roaring Twenties film, it's a French film playing it, that will about to premiere Tribeca, uh, some one character suggests that its century doesn't really begin until the 20s. All right. Well, final words... No, uh, well, you know, power to the people. Here we go. Love, peace, and hair grease. Bye. Ta-ta. Bye.